um, verses three, uh, 26, verses 3 and 4. Again, just <clears throat> to review a <clears throat> basic promise in Scripture and to relate that promise and learn to respond to these promises by looking at the rationale that surround them. These are not isolated texts, but these are <clears throat> promises that are meant to be understood in the context of all Scripture. <clears throat> and in Isaiah 26, verses 3 and 4, uh, here's a command to trust. Uh, that it's a reward saying that <clears throat> the steadfast of mind in my translation, but uh, it, it means basically a, a perfect peace. Um, the steadfast of mind thou will keep him in perfect peace because he trusts in thee. And it's interesting if you look at the structure of this promise carefully, <clears throat> notice that um, the command is an announcement first <clears throat> that certain people will be kept in perfect peace. And those people who are kept in perfect peace are the steadfast of mind. And in the context, the steadfast of mind is explained. The one who trusts in thee. Trust ye in Yahweh, or the Lord forever, for in the Lord God, or God the Lord, God Jehovah, we have an everlasting rock. And that's the imagery of, of trusting, of coming to rest on a foundation. And, of course, the doctrine of God as a rock is amplified in the New Testament. And it's the Jewish carpenter who is more than a man who assumes that this rock imagery applied in the Old Testament Jehovah applies to him. So that's one of those great promises that you want to just look at, jot down maybe, or keep a little 3 by 5 card with some of these references on them because you should find yourself using these uh, throughout the day or throughout the week as uh, situations and as the usual disasters strike at one after another. <clears throat> These are good recovery um, promises to use. Okay, let's have a word of prayer and uh, we'll get started in the lesson tonight. Father, we thank you once again for our so great salvation that we did not earn it, we did not deserve it, that it is not a salvation uh, that is dependent upon human works. We thank you that you have rescued us from self-righteousness, from humanly generated merit, and that instead, to humble us, you have created a salvation process and an included event so that someone else's righteousness is credited to our account. And therefore, we cannot be proud, we cannot be arrogant, but we have to be humble and receive what you have given. We thank you that you have illuminated our hearts so that we may believe in our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Tonight we're going to begin um, our study now on the next event. And uh, let me, I forgot my stuff here. Okay. Um, Frenchman can't talk without his arms waving all over the place, and I can't teach without an overhead projector, so. Um, let's turn to Acts 1. Because we have looked at the post gospel events, and we've looked and studied the ascent 
the ascension and session of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've noted that this was a physical ascent and session. And altogether, very, very little attention is devoted to this. I think if we took a survey of everyone sitting here tonight, uh, there's not one of you who could say that you've heard an in-depth sermon any time in your Christian life on the ascent and session of Jesus Christ. And it's a tragedy because the Lord Jesus Christ's ascension session, as we said, is a physical transport of His human body to a place in the universe. And you can fiddle around with geometry questions about where in the universe this place is, but the point remains that there is a specific physical geographical location in the universe where the Lord Jesus Christ is tonight seated. Such that if you had a video camera, you could take a picture of him tonight sitting on his throne by the Father's right hand. He didn't disappear, his body didn't dissolve, he didn't turn into a spirit. There is a physical body at the helm of the universe. And in our day, when we tend to imagine in terms of science fiction, uh, some creatures out of Star Wars and so on, um, that's nice to think about, but the universe is run by a representative of planet Earth. And that is a pretty astounding statement to make when you think of the size and the magnitude of the universe. And out of that, we said that the Lord Jesus Christ's ascent and session began the final age of history, which would begin with his ascension and move on to the time of his return. So that the Lord Jesus Christ has two advents in history. And from the standpoint and perspective of the Old Testament, these two advents were coalesced in prophecy. They were not easily distinguished. There was a suffering theme in the Messianic prophecies and there was a glorification theme in the Messianic prophecies. So confusing was this to the Jews that they literally believed there were two messiahs. The first messiah, the suffering servant messiah, would be Isaiah 53. It would be Joseph. Joseph was the type of the suffering Messiah. And then they believed, because they had to deal with this and this, they had to get this together somehow, and so they brought in the glorification uh, to refer to the son of David. But by the time the Gospels are finished, we now know that there are not two Messiahs, there's only one, but there are two advents of the one Messiah. So, historically, this is what happened. And you want to understand this because it comes up again and again in prophecy and we're going to see it as we get into the second session. If you, all I can think of to illustrate this is accordion. I don't know why I think of that, but it, it, the idea is that when history is looked at prophetically, it's like the accordion is compressed. And there are statements made that are true. But it turns out with time, the accordion begins to stretch so that the events that looked close together in history now become spread apart. You, this starts right out in the, in the, in the Garden of Eden. Uh, Eve is called by her name Eva, uh, Chava, from the Hebrew word, to life. Adam called his wife Eve. Her real name in Hebrew is Ish. 
in the common language in the Old Testament is this is the word for male and this is the word for female, ish and isha. And when they're created, that's what they are, ish and isha. Later on, ish begets a name called Adam, which is related to the earth, Adamah. It also might relate and hint the fact that he had a darker skin because the word Adamam means a, a brownish, reddish color. And Isha, the, the woman, her name is taken from the word for life. And Adam calls her Eve because of the promise of the gospel, the Proto-Evangelium that God told, told Adam about. And so she turns around and in her first son that's born, this lady, Chava, turns and she says, I've gotten a man, and it can be translated, I've gotten a man, the Lord. So she thought her first child might have been the Messiah, right there. Well, she was right in that God would, would, would deliver a Messiah through the seed of the woman. But we now know there was many centuries of stretching out that occurred between the time of Eve and the time of the final Messiah. So you'll see this again and again. You see it in the book of Daniel. You know, Daniel thinks the restoration is going to happen because the 70 years of captivity are all finished. And then it turns out, no, Daniel is going to be uh, seven times 70, stretching out again. So keep that in mind. That's a biblical precedent. Now tonight, we want to move on to the next thing, which is Pentecost. And this is woven together with the session uh, and ascension of Christ. And this is why, uh, on your notes, uh, I have stated the title for the first chapter to be the heavenly origin of the church, and the title for the second chapter, the earthly origin of the church, trying to tie these two events together. Pentecost must be seen in the light of what transpired prior to Pentecost, that is, that Jesus Christ, as a human, human being, sat at the Father's right hand. The session precedes and forms the basis of Pentecost. Pentecost, it didn't happen. It's not a, a sort of an accident in history. Pentecost flows out of the ascension and session. All right, now the, the description, well, there's some nuances in the text of Acts. So today, um, you have the notes, page 24. Uh, let me just highlight some things on that, that first page of notes, and then we'll go to, to the process we're going to use to study, the, study this event. Second paragraph, oh, and the first paragraph, something important about this, that last sentence in the first paragraph of your notes, Christ has become the great divider of mankind and the conqueror of principalities and powers. Uh, it's a, Jesus Christ is a divider. And you still see it today. You know, it's, it's, it's so interesting to watch. And the, and the lawyers that consider themselves to be the protectorates of the public school system will tolerate witchcraft in the public classroom. They will tolerate Indian chants in the public classroom. But what won't they tolerate? in the public. What is the one religion that they will not tolerate in the public educational forum? It's the gospel. Now, they can't articulate it. I mean, they're only lawyers. But the normal people of the world um, have the perception that 
Jesus Christ is offensive. I mean, you mentioned, unless you curse in his name, and that's, you know, that's acceptable language in the workplace, but if you mention him in a normal tone of voice, you know, you get attention real fast. There's an air and a, and a, a, an aurora about the Lord Jesus Christ. I've told you the story before of the graduate students at a university that I knew, and I lived close by for years, and uh, they were taking a course in leadership, and the professor got on the board and he asked the class, spent a whole hour or two lecture on this, went to the board and said, I want you guys to uh, give me the characteristics of the ideal leader. Well, here these 60 or 70 people came out with a, a leader had to, be, uh, had to be very wise, but the leader had to be one who knew people, who empathized with a common man, etc., etc., etc. Well, after they got through all these characteristics on the board, it was quite obvious that the only person who ever filled all those characteristics was the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, one of the girls in the class, who I knew very well, strong believer, and she decided that she and she'd heard the foul mouths for enough in classrooms, so she decided to rock them a little bit. And so she said, "Well, you know that what the prof? You know what that looks like? It looks like you've just done a biography of Jesus Christ." And she she told me later on. She says she got that word out of her mouth, and she said the temperature in the classroom dropped about 10 degrees. Didn't have to turn on the air conditioning. What causes this? It's because people intuitively know the Lord Jesus Christ and something about him that is offensive. So he is a divider. And he, he is there for a reason. Now, the church is centrally involved in the continuation of his work. And in the second paragraph, um, I'm pointing out there's a fundamental question that Acts starts with, right off the bat. Well, both the Father and the Son in heaven were thus ready to begin the church, further work was needed. The unanswered question of the disciples in Acts 1.6 had to be answered. And we'll look at that question tonight. What about the coming of the kingdom promised in the Old Testament now that the nation Israel had rejected Christ? This created a crisis. If you look at the third paragraph, I summarize where we're going with all this. So for the next four or five... Oh, and by the way, next Thursday night there won't be a class because I'm, of all places, going to Duluth, Minnesota. Why I'm going there in the wintertime is a long story. Um, but we'll be back in two, two weeks if I don't turn into an icicle while I'm up there. The Holy Spirit began this mission on a special day in a divinely designed calendar... Just as the advent of the sun... Now, this next sentence is the essence of this chapter. And you want to follow it carefully. So I'm going to read it carefully. Just try to follow with it, and then we'll get into the text. Just as the advent of the sun was a complicated event involving many Old Testament prophecies, a divided reception among the Jews, and a stretching out of history in a new age... So, the advent of the third person of the Trinity similarly became a complicated event. And we've looked at the second person of the Trinity. Now we're going into a study of the third person of the Trinity. This chapter will trace the Spirit's Pentecostal work and show how the church began amidst a time of tumult in Israel. And we will follow the same method. We're going to do with this what we did with the session. Remember with the session we said, let's look at the historical event first. 
Then we'll look at how the people who were on the ground, on location, experienced and witnessed this event. How did they interpret what was going on? They had to interpret what was going on. I mean, these guys, well, the session and session of Christ, I mean, how high did he ascend before he went in the cloud? We don't know. A cloud came upon uh, the Mount of Ascent. It could have been, he could have, they could have watched his body go floating up, maybe 100 feet, 200 feet, 500 feet, 1,000 feet, but eventually it was ensconced in the cloud. And so that's the end of the observation. So everything else you read in the New Testament is an analysis of an unseen thing that wasn't physically observed, namely that he ascended to heaven, sits on the Father's right hand. Now, true, he appeared to Stephen and he appeared to Paul from the Father's right hand, verifying the interpretation. But we have to look at the event first. So that's what we're going to do tonight. And if you'll turn now to Acts 1, we want to look at the text. And we want to ask the question, what was observed at Pentecost? Okay, so what we're going to see here is that the, um, there's two basic questions. One is, what was observed? And the next question is going to be, when was it observed? Obviously, at this point in the notes, we're only on the what, not the when. So we want to look at Acts chapter 1, and I want to go through it pretty carefully because there are things here in the text that we want to watch carefully. Um, obviously, Acts starts out, Luke is talking to Theophilus. We don't know who Theophilus was, other than he probably was the guy who paid money to have Luke write the book of Acts. Some people feel that the whole book of Acts, as well as Luke, was produced and uh, gathered together from Luke through Theophilus as part of the preparation for the trial of Paul in Rome, that this book is very concerned with legalities. And the reason scholars think that, many reasons, but one of the reasons is that Luke in Acts is very careful to document the political response to the gospel. There's a lot of events in there, if you think about it. How Paul gets arrested and what happened, what he said to the official, what the official said to him. Every time an official is mentioned, his jurisdiction is specified in terms of Roman law, and so on and so forth. So, this may well have been a court brief, originally. Of course, the Holy Spirit used that for the whole church to be briefed. So we don't know who Theophilus was, but you notice in verse 1, he says, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Clearly, the first account is the Gospel of Luke. But notice the verb in verse 1. Pay careful attention to this. What do you notice about the verbs in verse 1 that suggest something about the book of Acts? How does he qualify what Jesus did. If you look carefully, you'll see the word begin. Isn't that a strange... Think about it for a minute. He says that the Gospel of Luke tells all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, what does that say about Acts? That this is the continuation of the apostles or Jesus? Jesus. So, if you look at the text, what he's actually saying, the first account is where Jesus began to do and to teach. Now I'm going to continue what he is teaching and doing. So,
So this is a, an introduction to the whole book of Acts as to what's going on here. Because now the Lord Jesus Christ, see, this is why we covered ascension and session first. Whatever the Holy Spirit does down here, he's doing in response to something going on up here. And what's going on up here is that the Lord Jesus Christ is still in command. He may physically not be here on planet Earth, but he is running the show from heaven. And what happens down here, whatever the Holy Spirit does, he does to carry out the Lord Jesus such that what happens when it's driven by the Holy Spirit is akin and inseparable from the Lord Jesus. So if we could say the first account is all that Jesus began to do, the second account is what he continues to do to this day. Now, going back to the first account, it says, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up. So there's the ascension. So clearly the ascension and session mark the separation between the gospel and Acts. It's that event, not Pentecost. It's the ascent and session that marked the separation here. Until the day that he was taken up, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, in the tenses of these uh, form, he was taken up after he had given orders through the Spirit to the apostles. So Luke affirms that the basis of authority in the church is the apostles. And we're going to have to study those. That's going to be a subject we'll get into the apostolic church. But if you've re recited the Apostles' Creed, the so-called Apostles' Creed, I'm sure you've seen this phrase. The Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. Now, people see that phrase and what do they think of? Roman Catholic Church. Nothing in that phrase. You see Roman in that church, in that sentence? I don't know Rome. This is talking about, you know what this word means? It means universal. I believe in the holy universal, meaning it encompasses all men, all languages, the holy universal apostolic church. Now why does it say apostolic church? How do we know Jesus Christ? Is Jesus Christ walking around today? No. Well then how do we know him? We know him through the witness of the apostles who generated the corpus we call the New Testament. So our means of knowing Christ is through the apostles who taught, whom he commanded. Then it very carefully qualifies who an apostle is in verse 3. It says that those apostles whom he has chosen, to those, the pronoun, these, has the antecedent, and the antecedent of the pronoun these in verse 3 has to be a noun somewhere, and the noun that's the antecedent of the pronoun is apostles. So to these, that is to the apostles, he also presented himself alive. So that's something else he did. Uh, after his suffering, by many convincing or infallible proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Now, it's important to notice something else about this text. Notice in verse uh, 3, several things are going on here. It's saying 
that the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to these people alive after His resurrection, after His suffering. Now, when He appeared, and all of His appearances are recorded in the Gospels, not all of them, but many of them, He appeared physically. How do we know He appeared physically and not as a ghost? And get this straight. We've got to see the physical body of Jesus Christ. Because when he showed up, what did he do? He ate. And what did he say when Thomas doubted? Reach here. Touch. Empirical. We touched. We, we heard. We saw. That's all empirical. It's all physical. Muhammad, with all due respect, did not rise from the dead. Buddha did not rise from the dead. None of the other religious leaders ever rose from the dead. Jesus Christ uniquely rose from the dead. Now, he presented himself alive by many convincing proofs. Now, we don't know what all those convincing proofs are. We just have the report of Luke. He says that they are very convincing. And keep in mind, the guy who's writing this is what? By profession. He's a doctor. And he's done some very thorough research. As we've said many times, Luke's writings are the only gospel writers really that deal with how women felt when they were pregnant. Now, why do you suppose Luke, of all the gospel writers, brings that up? Because he's interested in that. He's a doctor. He went back and asked them. And why do you suppose he was attracted to what they thought about when they were pregnant? Because of the claims of what? The virgin birth. You think a doctor might be interested in a virgin birth? I guess so. So, Luke, Luke had his head screwed on and he did some careful work here. So he says, in verse 3, he doesn't include all these, but he says that the Lord Jesus Christ appeared many times over a 40-day period. And then notice how he ends the sentence in verse 3. He says, the subject of conversation that the Lord had with the disciples, apostles, was about the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God is the debate. We've just spent four weeks on Reformed theology and dispensational theology. Two years ago, we went through amillennialism, premillennialism, and postmillennialism. Included in all that is a discussion and a disagreement among Christians about what is the kingdom of God. And the issue we want to look at right in this text is how is the kingdom of God described? Why? Because there are those amillennialists who believe, sincerely believe, that the kingdom of God refers to a spiritual kingdom, not a political, physical, observable kingdom. There are the premillennialists who say that the kingdom of God is a physical, political kingdom. I mean, there's a disagreement here. One side's right, the other's wrong. There's the post-millennialists who believe actually sometimes in a modified uh, physical kingdom that will come in by the church as the church advances civilization and so forth. Okay, so he, this, he presented himself as the main verb. And the, it's explained as an appearing sequence of appearances. Not only appearances, but also speech. The Lord Jesus Christ spoke and he taught. Now verse 4 moves things on. And in verse 4, we have the statement, 
that he gathered them together. This is before he's he's ascended now, remember. He doesn't ascend until later in this chapter. So there he is. He gathers them together. So he calls the meeting. He gathers them together and he commands them not to leave Jerusalem. Do you know where in the Gospels he commands people to leave Jerusalem? When they see the, the beast in the temple. Then you get out of Jerusalem, get out fast. So see, there's different commands here. And you've got to sort this out. Here he's telling them, I don't want you to leave, I want you to stay. I want you to wait for what the Father has promised, which you heard from me. Now, what is it that they heard from me, which is this promise? Now, we've introduced something else in verse 4. And you want to keep track of this. There's something called the promise. And there's something called the kingdom of God. So, let's go to John 14, when the Lord Jesus took the disciples aside and prepared them for the church age. And in this so-called upper room discourse... Jesus Christ went through an entire revelation of stuff that was never before revealed in history. This was not considered to be part of the kingdom of God. It says, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in me. In my Father's house, many branches, and so on. He says in verse 2, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, the Lord is in the place with a resurrected body. We who believe in Jesus Christ will share that place in resurrected bodies. I go and I am preparing a place for you. Not a spiritual eighth dimension. This is a place where we will. And I go and I prepare a place. Now, notice the action in verse 3. I will come again and I will receive you to Myself, that where I am, you may be also. So this is a reception, and I want, again, to notice something about this. The church is going to be received to the Lord Jesus Christ and be with Him forever. There's a motion here, so to speak. And then he goes on and describes many, many different things. And then he goes on to say, verse 25. He says, These things I have spoken with you while I am yet with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, which is a refrain from verse 1 of chapter 14. So, he's preparing them for his absence. And he's preparing them for his absence by promising that in the interim, in the inter-advent age, between the first advent and the second advent, the Holy Spirit will come in a way that he did not come in the Old Testament. He's not referring to an Old Testament prophecy. And there's not one Old Testament prophecy here. This is all new stuff. And he's saying that the Holy Spirit will then uh, be with you as your comforter, as the one who comes alongside and helps. Um, verse, uh, chapter 16 
uh, speeding up going through this section. Uh, chapter 16, verse 7. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the Helper won't come to you. Now see, history has cause-effect in it, that history has a contingency in it. There are things that can't happen until other things happen. And here it is, right in the inner workings of the Trinity, that you can talk all you want to about God's decrees are going to come to pass. But there's a pathway to get there. And there's certain things that have to happen before you get down to the end of history. So, here he's giving you this. He says that the Helper shall, won't come, but if I go, I will send him to you. Now, what's different about verse 7 of chapter 16 that I just read? Flip back to chapter 14 and verse 26. What do you notice different about the source of the Holy Spirit? Anybody notice? In chapter 14, it's the Father that sends. But in chapter 16, it's the Lord Jesus Christ who ascends. Now that gets into something else we'll get into in the Holy Spirit. That split the Eastern Orthodox Church from the Roman Catholic Church. That little thing that I just showed you. Whether the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, or whether the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father alone. And you can say, how can you split a church over some trivial little thing like that? Obviously, they didn't think it was very trivial. And we'll, we'll, that's coming attractions. We'll have to get into why that's a very important thing, in fact. All right, going back to Acts. What we've shown you is that's where Jesus talked about this promise. So now we have this promise thing of the Holy Spirit occupying earth between the time of the first and second advents. So he gathers them together in Acts 1. He commands them not to leave Jerusalem. Wait for what the Father had promised, which you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Well, we've got to go back, and we'll go back in Luke's first volume to when John the Baptist started talking about these baptisms. So if you'll turn to Luke chapter 3... We'll go back to see what Luke had to say. We could go back to other Gospels, but since we're in Luke's uh, Acts, we probably want to get Luke's, uh, Luke's perspective on what's going on. So going back to Luke 3, now what we want to check, we've already gone back to John to check this promise thing out. Now we're talking about baptism of the Spirit. And we want to talk, get some background on what was going on there. So back in Luke ch chapter 3, notice how precise Luke is. Here's the historian in him coming out, verse 1. He dates it, he locks it in to Roman Empire chronologies. He notice, notice how complete verse 1 is. He discusses the Roman issue, Tiberius Caesar. He describes Pontius Pilate, who is a subsidiary agent of the Roman government in Palestine. He describes about Herod, who was this uh, treacherous Jew that the Romans worked through, the Herodian family. His brother Philip. I mean, you've got it all spaced out here because Luke is interested in saying the Christian religion is not some hokey-pokey thing off into the spiritual realm. 
It was happened inside real history. So, in verse 2, he, he dates it in terms of the Jews. I and mean, he's got every calendar going here. He's got the Roman calendar. He's got the subsidiary administrative calendar. Now, in verse 2, he goes to the Jewish high priest calendar. You couldn't ask the guy to give a better historical context of this thing. So he says, in that, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came unto all the district around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, I don't have a map here of where this took place, but if you draw a picture of the north end of the Dead Sea, Sea of Galilee is up here, Jordan River comes down here, here you have Jerusalem. Uh, Israel is such that the height of land is right along here. So you go east of that, you go down. You go west of that, you go down. Since the winds are from the west, you get rain showers here on this side, so this is all fertile. This side, the winds descend, it's dry, and you get desert. So out in the middle of this road that still exists, by the way, you can drive out there, this windy little road, and there's Jericho ruins right there. Today it goes over into Jordan. And you go along this road and you see these dunes and everything else. It's just total desert. This is where this recluse preacher called John the Baptist had his ministry. People had to come from this nice, comfortable place here, Jerusalem, down the road, out in the middle of the desert. I mean, it's like going to California, out, of, out in the middle of the desert out there, or into Arizona, you know, going to Yuma for the summer or something. So, it's interesting where he held his ministry. He must not have followed the church growth movement very well. Didn't keep up with the, the manuals on how to, to do surveys of what people need and be ready for them and so forth, make it convenient. Didn't have any school buses. All he had was the Word of God. Such a tragedy. And he came into all the district around Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, this was something new for the Jews because baptism in Judaism was used of Gentiles who wanted to affiliate with Jews in the synagogue. And the act of baptism was a, a confession of cleansing and forgiveness that, you know, you're those dirty Gentiles. And, you know, you've you got to wash up before you part, become part of our club. Baptism then had that connotation. Well, if baptism had that connotation, how do you suppose Jews felt? When he comes out there, they would come walking out on their burrows or whatever their substitute SUVs were at the time, and he, they come out here, and here's this guy out in the middle of the Timbuktu preaching this gospel and then further insulting them, saying, you're not going to even be part of the kingdom unless you get baptized like the Gentiles that you don't like. So you, you really see that you've got to see this guy was not only a recluse, a hermit, he was very offensive. He had a personality, nobody liked him. And Jesus said, you know, it's interesting, later on, he said, you people fuss at me because I go to the parties. Jesus went to parties, he's very sociable. You know, he could sit down and talk to a prostitute and not be shocked. The religious crowd couldn't do that. 
So here he is. He's the party man. John is out there with a locust or something. And Jesus said, you know, you people are really interesting. He says, you criticize me because I go to the parties. Then you criticize him because he doesn't go to the parties. Sounds to me like it's your problem, not ours. And that's exactly the way Jesus handled personality differences. People are attracted to different personalities in the ministry. But the personality ultimately doesn't make a bit of difference. It's who has the Word of God and who doesn't. So, here it is, in the middle of the desert, and he begins to preach this offensive message. And he goes back in verse 4 and 5 and 6, and he quotes Old Testament prophecies of the kingdom. Now, isn't that interesting? We're back to that kingdom of God thing again. And he says... Every ravine shall be filled up. Every mountain and hill shall be brought low. You know, if you sung Handel's Messiah, you, you know of that, how Handel used that text. And therefore he began saying to the multitudes who were going out, you brood of vipers. Wouldn't that be a nice way to start a sermon? Bunch of snakes. And here's how he started. I mean, this is right out of homiletics lesson here on how to have an introduction to a very winsome way of talking to people. So then he says, bring forth fruits, keeping for repentance. And don't say, we have Abraham our father. In other words, don't fall back on your Jewish heritage because the kingdom of God that's coming isn't going to respect your Jewish heritage. It's going to respect whether or not you have trusted in Jehovah, the God of Israel. It's going to be a trust issue, not a racial issue. Not a cultural issue. The issue is whether you believe or reject Jesus Christ. Period. So that's the message he has to get. And it was hard for John to do this. But then he begins to mention things. He says in verse 9, The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Watch how fire is used here. And he says, the multitude question, then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, let the man who has two tunics, and he begins to give them ethical issues. And he, and he talks to the soldiers, by the way, and notice in verse 13 and 14, he doesn't say get out of the army because you became a Christian. Good point, see. Christianity is not for pacifism. And people I down through history have always argued for pacifism. And they've argued in the basis of church history because there was a time when Christians did get out of the Roman army. But it wasn't because they didn't want to serve the Roman army as soldiers. It was because to get in the Roman army, they had so corrupted the thing, you had to swear to Caesar as Curios. And as a Christian, they couldn't salute Caesar as Curios, so they got out. But that wasn't because they were pacifists. They had to kill somebody, they killed him as under the Lord. They were soldiers who were trained to kill. That's why they had swords, lethal weapons. Not promiscuously, but when justice has to be done, justice has to be done. And if you kill someone for it, then you kill someone for it. That's part of being a soldier. I've never understood pacifists. Well, I had deals with this all the time during the Vietnam War. I had all these little mealy-mouthed people fond of counting it or something because they were worried about what we were doing to the Vietnamese. Well, you know what happened? When the communists took over South Vietnam, there was a million Vietnamese that died in boats. And where were all these people? See, 
It's very interesting. All the critics of the Vietnam War didn't lift a finger to help the poor Vietnamese that were out there dying for weeks in boats from lack of water, lack of food, and everything else. See, it showed they weren't interested in ethics at all. They were cop-outs and losers. And they, of course, brought this country into a state of humiliation by their betrayal of American soldiers that gave their lives in Vietnam. So, understand from the text of Scripture, the Bible is not against the military. It is not against the police. So the people were in a great expectation. And they asked him, are you the Christ? No, he says, verse 16. And then he says in verse 17, and he gives a picture. Now, in other Gospels, which we won't have time to talk to about tonight, John mentions the baptism of, uh, he will baptize you, you know, with, with the Holy Spirit and with fire. But look at what he does in verse 17. Notice that he says, his winnowing fork will be in his hand to thoroughly clear the threshing floor to gather wheat into his barn and burn the chaff. Now there's the tip on what this baptism business is. Because there are two, actually three baptisms that John is talking about. Baptism of fire, baptism of the Spirit, and the baptism of repentance. Now only one of these is a ritual baptism. The ritual baptism is number three. That was water. Number one and number two are not rituals, they're reality. And the baptism of the Spirit is the coming and advent of the Holy Spirit. And people often mix these two up and say, we're baptized with the Spirit and with fire. You'll hear that in certain Christian circles. Well, I surely hope not. Because the baptism of fire here is the, re the second advent of Jesus Christ. Look at the metaphor that he's using of the wheat. The farmer takes the wheat in his large green shovels and he throws the wheat up in the air. Why does he What's the chaff a picture of? Unbelievers. So the baptism of fire is associated with the second advent of Christ. The baptism of the Spirit is associated with those who have trusted in Christ and look forward to this kingdom. All right, now let's go back to the book of Acts and pick up the nuance from the Lord's words. He says, John baptized with water. See, there's baptism number three, ritual baptism. And then he says, but you... Now, who's the you? Well, the you are the ones that he's presenting himself alive to. These are the Christian, the believers. But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, that's baptism number one. Not many days from now. So, he doesn't mention baptism number two for a reason. He mentions baptism number one. Now, he begins to do an amazing thing. Something happens right here. And you have to watch the text carefully to catch this. He, he's just got through saying, talking about what? He's talking about somehow this Holy Spirit and promise, and he's connected the baptism of Spirit with this promise thing. 
because the Holy Spirit's common to both of those topics. And now he says, in verse, uh, they say in verse 6, when they had come together, they were asking him. And in the Greek language, this is an imperfect tense, which means, and it should be understood as, they kept on asking him. It wasn't just one time they asked him. They kept pressing him for, to answer this question. But look at the question. He says, Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, why do you suppose they asked this time? What had he just got done doing in verse 5? He said, not many days hence, you will be baptized with the Spirit. So what the Lord is doing now is, remember we said this whole thing started off with two things. There's this promise thing and there's the kingdom of God thing. The kingdom of God thing was in the Old Testament. The promise thing was something new. That was revealed in the Upper Room Discourse. Not in the Old Testament. Nothing in the Old Testament about the Holy Spirit coming down like that and Jesus making a home for somebody and that sort of thing. So Jesus has said this promise, this promise of the Holy Spirit that is related to John's baptism is coming here and it's only a few days away. You guys hang around because it's going to happen. Short time. So they're saying to themselves, well, you know, you've just been talking about this kingdom. We heard it all from Isaiah and Jeremiah. Is this when the kingdom is going to come to? They're asking in addition to that. But notice in verse 5, the Lord gives a specific answer concerning the promise. Not many days hence. This will happen. But then he shies away when it says in verse 7, his response to the question of, are you going to bring the kingdom in too? Are you going to bring that long-awaited thing out of the Old Testament prophecies? He says, It is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You see, there's two things going on here, and this is the dilemma of an interpreter of the book of Acts. There is a, 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 there's a, what do you want to say, a binary theme running here. There's this Old Testament anticipation, and then there's this new thing that's also happening with it. It'll get resolved as the book of Acts goes on. But right now it's not resolved, except if you compare verse 5 with verse 7, clearly something radical has happened here. The baptism of the Spirit that previously John had said, the Messiah is going to come, he's going to bring in the kingdom, and he's going to baptize you with the Spirit. Now Jesus is, as it were, splitting off the baptism of the Spirit, which becomes soon, not many days hence, but then he demurs when he says, are you going to bring the kingdom in with the baptism of the Spirit? Not for you to know. So now we have a certainty over the promise and a contingency over the kingdom. And this is why I warned you back when we were dealing with the Reformed theology in that Acts thing I said, one of the problems is, is that you can't theologically eisegete this text. You've got to let the text speak to you. And the text is saying there is contingency in history here. Even the Lord is saying, I'm not going to tell you when the kingdom. It's up to the Father. Meaning it could come soon. It could come in the far distance. It's all contingent. 
Now that, that bugs certain people who have this very heavy hyper-Calvinism that history can be so open like this and so kind of contingent. But so, what does the text say? It's not contingent with regard to God. Clearly he says that. So the heart of the Reformed theologian is, is, should be protected. In verse 6 he says, uh, they say, are you going to bring the kingdom in? And he says, it's not for you to know. The Father has fixed them, however, in his own authority. So there's no violation of the sovereignty of God here. It's just that he's not telling us. And he's letting his plan work its mysterious wonders in history. So it's not for you to know the time. And there's something else in verse 7. If the kingdom has changed in its form from the physical, political picture of the Old Testament to something new and spiritual, do you see that ever addressed in verse 7? Is verse 7 dealing at all with a qualification of the kind and the content of the kingdom? Or is it dealing only with the time of the kingdom? It's only dealing with the time. So there's no correction in the text of verse 7 to the question in verse 5. In verse, verse 6. In verse 6, what did they say? Will you restore the kingdom to Israel? That's pure Old Testament stuff. You would have thought that had the kingdom going to be coming in in some new form, that the Lord would have corrected it in verse 7, and He doesn't. He's saying the kingdom will be restored to Israel, because He doesn't say it's not going to be restored to Israel. The kingdom will be restored. God is His fixed times, but it's not for you to know. Then, of course, we have the ascension. You shall receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. So something else is going on because now in verse 8, the Old Testament idea of the kingdom was, and it's clearly stated in the prophets, that here's the eastern end of the Mediterranean, here's the Dead Sea, here's Galilee. The idea of the kingdom was that all nations will come to Jerusalem. That's the motion, convergence. What kind of motion do you find in verse 8? Divergence. So something's going on here. And it's very radically different from the classic Old Testament passage. He says, whatever this promise is, when He has come upon you, you will be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part. You can, that's the outline of the book of Acts. You can outline the book of Acts by those ge geographical locations. First few chapters of Acts, they're all in Jerusalem. The next few, they go out in Judea and Samaria. And then after that, they go into the uttermost parts of the world. And by the way, notice in verse 8, you will be my witnesses both. The way we read that isn't... <laughs> The way we read verse 8 sometimes is wrong. We, we look at verse 8 and we say, the Holy Spirit's going to lead us uh, onto the mission field. He's going to do this. He's going to do that. And that's not terribly wrong, except we have in our mind is that, well, we're going to obey the Lord and we're going to go out and be missionaries. That's the usual interpretation. But if you read carefully the book of Acts, that's not just how Luke is picturing it. Because in every one of these movements from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, the almost parts of the world, the church is dragged, kicking and screaming, 
into the next outer ring. It's persecution in Jerusalem that drives them into Samaria. It is Paul being yanked out from being a murderous persecutor of Christians. He has an argument with Peter, an argument with the church officials. They can't stand him. He argues, and so he takes off and he does his gospel thing in the uttermost parts of the world. Now, what's so eloquent about verse 8 is that it's saying that the Holy Spirit is going to do this whether the church gets with the program or not. As a matter of fact, talk about suffering, as a matter of fact, the argument of the book of Luke is that the only way verse 8 can ever happen is that the church has to get kicked in the butt every so often because it won't do what it's supposed to do. A very unflattering view, but it's very real. I mean, come on, we're all big boys and girls. We know that's the way it works. And that's the way work, God works in our lives. What I love about the Bible is it's realistic. It's not some super spiritual thing here that's going on. This is candid stuff by the author and the creator of the universe. So, what we've talked about, if you come to the notes now, back to the notes, we've gone through Acts 1 with some background. And I want to just review a few things in the notes up to the page 26. Looking on page 25, I'm giving you the gospel background. We've gone through that tonight in the text. We've gone to Luke chapter 3. Something I didn't mention in the next to last paragraph on page 25 is the role of John the Baptist. I mentioned that back when going through the Old Testament. Remember, what was the role of a prophet in the Old Testament? He picked the man who would be the king. The prophets were the kingmakers. We, we use that term derogatorily. We think of some guy like Mayor Daly or something, smoke-filled room type, uh, the kingmakers. Well, these guys were real kingmakers. They picked the king. There wasn't any democracy operating here. The prophets picked the king. John the Baptist isn't saying, oh, gee, would you vote for Jesus? He's not running an election campaign. John the Baptist is saying, Jesus has already been selected. I've authorized it. I'm the, I'm the prophet. And God told me that this guy's it. So you accept my word. You don't like it, you're snakes. So that was the announcement of the kingdom. John was the king-making prophet operating as a classical prophet. Now, it, since the kingdom of God would admit only saved individuals, it was necessary that the people be challenged to believe. Those who did would constitute the Old Testament prophecy referred to as the faithful remnant. And there had to be a judgment upon the nation to separate believers and unbelievers. So there's the, that's the theology behind it. And I covered that last paragraph, page 25. Remember, I covered that when I was talking to you about uh, the um, issue of contingency in history. And now, the, uh, on, the, on the page 26, I, uh, in italics, that middle paragraph, the Lord's further revelation, that's what we've just covered, that Jesus' response is very important and forms the core of the book of Acts. He loosens the association of the spirit baptism with the kingdom by insisting that the spirit baptism would come shortly, whereas the time when the kingdom would come would be not necessarily so imminent. And that's another one of these surprises that you see in history. And this is going to open up what we call the dispensation of the church or the church age. It's a new thing 
with new modus operandi, with a new relationship to Jesus Christ that was not totally foreseen in the Old Testament. It wasn't really, it wasn't really foreseen at all. Um, it was a surprise. Now, why do you suppose it was a surprise? Because if it had been revealed, it would have prophesied that Israel would have rejected the Messiah. It was kind of a negative prophecy. So, the Lord has his plans here. And he said, you're going to accept my son? Hey, Israel, going to accept my son? You're going to accept him as Messiah? No? Think you're going to stop my plan? Sorry, guys. Got another plan over here. Set you aside for a while. I'm going to work with the church. And they're going to say, you're going to do what? I'm going to work with the church. Well, we never heard that before. That's right, because you wouldn't listen to the Messiah. And what was the Messiah talking about? In the upper room discourse. Well, we didn't get to see the upper room. That's right, because you were unbelievers. So, the revelation of the Holy Spirit to the church is the new thing. And we'll follow that up and we'll try to, to work with that. You'll notice the next note on page 27. We're going to get into Acts 2 and the phenomena of what was going on at Pentecost morning. We have to pay attention to the, some of the details in that text. Father, we thank you for our time tonight. We thank you that you have provided a complete, sufficient canon of Scripture that you can also supply the Holy Spirit to our hearts to open that scripture to us. We thank you through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, some time here for some brief Q&A and uh, then we'll finish for the evening. So if you have anybody besides Debbie will start questions. Debbie wasn't here, we wouldn't have a Q&A. <laughs> George. Yeah, all of the Acts is a very coherent book. The problem with Acts is that there are two things going on, two themes. And one of them, you'll see, is the kingdom of God. It's thought about in classical Old Testament terms. 
The problem with this is that the emphasis on the kingdom of God, I guess because you're sitting there, I, I should go this way. Um, the, the emphasis on the kingdom of God starts to eclipse as you go, as you go down. And the emphasis on the church and what God's doing in the church increases. So you get these two themes, and it's somewhat hard sometimes to thread these out um, because you'll have, you'll have for, uh, we'll get into this in, in the day of Pentecost, Peter's sermon and what that sermon is really doing. Uh, that is not a classical evangelistic sermon that we would think of in a developed church age style. It's not like Acts 17, for example, when Paul went to Athens. So there's, there's some differences here. And particularly on the day of Pentecost that we're coming up to, there, were, there was a stunning, stunning things happened, but they were, they were not the kind of things that were directly anticipated in the Old Testament prophecy. And so you have this situation where Peter is going to get up and he's going to say, uh, this is what Joel forecast. This is what Joel prophesied. But if you look back at Joel, you don't see it prophesied. So we get into this issue of what it means to fulfill again that we talked about last uh, when we went through the appendix. So I, I'm just saying that Acts is a coherent book, but it's not quite so easy to interpret as some would have you think. The epistles actually are a lot easier to interpret than the book of Acts. Acts kind of requires a lot of thought about the Old Testament and the New Testament to thread your way through there. And of course, what we're going to... Yes, go ahead, Mike. Yeah. Okay, Luke 3.16... Okay. Yeah, the fire is a is a judgment. Baptism huh? Okay, the you, uh, the, the issue there, John is talking to them all. And remember, he's got a mixed multitude coming out to see him. He's not just talking to believers there. That was his whole point of his ministry, was to separate the wheat and the chaff. John was a, like, a, an, a, he could have been Elisha. If the, if the kingdom was going to come and people had accepted Christ, Remember what Jesus said in that, well, it's in the notes, but we covered it a couple of nights ago, a couple of weeks ago. Remember that strange passage, it's so difficult, kind of weird, where Jesus said, well, if you'd accepted the kingdom, John was Elijah. So you go back and you say, well, what function was Elijah? Well, think about what was Elijah in the Old Testament? Was he sent to a godly nation? No. He was, uh, he was one of the, the tough guys that God sent into a troubled situation. That was Elijah. And it was not a compliment to the nation Israel at the time of John the Baptist to be told that they needed an Elijah. Because if they needed an Elijah, that means that they were in a spiritual state like Elijah in the Old Testament, and that was the northern kingdom when it was apostatized over Baalism. So why would you want to bring in the heavy guy, the bad man, 
to work with, with everything's fine? I don't think so. So the ministry of John the Baptist was like that of Elijah to split the nation. Yeah. Sometimes you see that because on the day of Pentecost, people think that fire came down. They, they associate what happened on the Pentecost with fire. The Methodist church, you know, they have to let the, the fire thing come down. And if you look carefully at the text, it doesn't say it's fire. It says it's like fire. So, there's a, and, it, and it's, it's the shape of a tongue. And it's parting like fire. So it's some strange phenomenon, but it's not really fire, fire. So, uh, so you have these two things, and, and, and you've got three, the three baptisms, and they all get mixed together here. And it's trying to sort out, well, let's see, baptism number three happens with John the Baptist, then baptism number one, that occurs in Pentecost, and then baptism two doesn't, and why? Here's a tip to sort this out. We've just been through, in the last year, in the last two years, the life of Christ. Now, when Jesus Christ came, his first and his second advent were coalesced. And it would have been theoretically possible for the kingdom to come to Israel had Israel accepted the Messiah. Now, the cross would have had to work in there somehow, but the idea was that the, the kingdom was near. That's what the, the gospel said. Now we know the kingdom wasn't because they rejected, and so now we have this, this thing, the accordion thing again. If you will take that idea and apply it to the coming of the Spirit, you got it not. Because the Holy Spirit was prophesied to come to set up the kingdom. But if the Holy Spirit came to set up the kingdom and the kingdom couldn't come because Israel rejected the Messiah, what is the Holy Spirit supposed to do now? He's a guy without a job, so to speak. He shows up, but, but to do what? He can't bring in the kingdom because Israel hasn't received Messiah yet. So now we've got an interesting thing. That's why I pointed you tonight so carefully to that text where Jesus says, the Spirit's going to come, but I'm not telling you about the kingdom. And he connects that, you see, with the Holy Spirit doing something different. He's come, but like Jesus in the first advent, the Holy Spirit on his first advent can't fulfill all the Old Testament prophecies. So, the Holy Spirit's going to come again. He's going to come and he's going to set up the kingdom. There's going to be two advents of the Holy Spirit, just like there's two advents of the Son. And that's what makes things so complicated in here. And that's the problem. When you, you, next week we'll get into Acts 2 and Peter gets up and he says, this is that spoken by Joel and Joel's talking about the coming of the Spirit. And, but, but it's the first advent of the Spirit. Now, certain things happen with the first advent, certain things happen with the second advent. Just like certain things happen with the first advent of Jesus, some things happen with the second advent of Jesus. I don't When the kingdom comes. Does he leave? What happens in the tribulation when the church is raptured? Okay. So, so, this, so this first advent is the church age. Yeah. Is that, dis that dispensation? Yeah. Okay. 
and then it's ended. See, there's internal consistency here because he's got to leave before he can come again. Not in the sense of time, but in the sense of prophetic fulfillment is very parallel. Yes, Laura. That the apostles understood that at this point? Oh, I don't think so. That the, I think I think it was Paul that made the breakthrough. And I think, there, I mean, you get that impression because Peter, you know, even when Peter writes his epistle, you remember what he says about Paul's writings? He says, this is kind of heavy stuff here. And I think it took a man of... God groomed Paul to, to do the thing about the church. And this is why in university classrooms, you'll hear this more than once I've heard this, and I've talked to college students. Michael, uh, Mike comes here, that go, now is going to seminary. Um, they love to tell you in a university classroom that it was Paul that screwed up Christianity. You've probably seen that in Time magazine or something like that. You know, if we could just get back to the way Jesus left things, instead of this guy Paul came along and he screwed it all up. Well, what they, what the, they observe something that's true. These guys are observant. There is something that Paul did that isn't finished in the Gospels. Paul introduces a whole new theme here. And if you think about it, the way God worked in Paul's life, he set Paul up to do that. Because what had Paul not seen that the rest of the disciples, the rest of the apostles did see? The Lord Jesus Christ in his, pre in his incarnate life. Paul didn't see that. He saw him on the Damascus Road, but that was after he ascended. So Paul knew the Lord Jesus Christ as the ascended one. And he knew him after all this had happened. And he spent years and years thinking about this. So when you get to Paul and you read in Ephesians 1, what does Paul say? He says, this is a mystery. It was a mystery was not revealed in the Old Testament. So Paul did contribute a tremendous theology to the church. And it's not that Paul differs with Jesus. It's just that Jesus worked at one moment of history. Paul worked at a subsequent moment of history. You always have to sequence things in, in, in their chronological order to make sense of the Bible. Because history changes things. Decisions change. Very difficult. This is not an easy class. And, and, and uh, most of you have been with me for a couple of years, so you know uh, how we proceed. This is, this is hard stuff. And this, don't feel bad if you're confused by a lot of this stuff. Because this is hard to work. It's hard for me to work through this and, and get it halfway consistent and right. That's what this age, remember we said, church history is progressive. The understanding of the mission of the church just started two, three hundred years ago. We're still in an era of history where we're learning this stuff. Hopefully preparatory and get it straight before the Lord Jesus comes back for us all. Now it would be kind of nice that when he finishes that, oh, you guys finally got it together. Great. Okay, come on. But it takes time to work through that. Yes, George. Yeah, every time you read through it, you find something new. I was reading through uh, Peter's epistles, and, and it was just in the spot where he was 
at least in the NIV, and I can't remember where it was now, but in the NIV, he referred to it as to Paul's writings and paralleled them with Scripture. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. That's right. There's a the passage that uh, George is talking about. What Peter's doing is he says, he talks about Paul's letters people don't like along with the other scripture. And what he's saying there is that Paul's writings of scripture and it's a stunning statement it's a stunning statement because again you'll hear in university classrooms oh the New Testament didn't come into existence for three to four hundred years afterwards it took the church to understand all this maybe in official conferences yeah but how do you explain the fact that right there in Peter's epistle they've already accepted the canonicity of Paul's letters come on of course, they want to rewrite that and say, well, that didn't really mean that, and so on. But this is, that's revisionism. That's not studying the text as it is. Okay. Uh, okay, well, if there's not any other questions, we'll go on next, uh, not next week, but the week after next week, we'll on Acts 2. And we're going to get into the tongues issue, what that's all about. And by the way, as we get into this, we'll get into the sessionist thing. Remember we talked about justification by faith being a Protestant thing over against Roman Catholicism? Well, we're going to have the other thing that's duly Protestant called session. C, not S, C. Sessionist. All Protestants have been sessionists in that the conditions in the book of Acts ceased. So you cannot perpetuate Acts through the rest of the church age. No apostles.